He was the runt of the litter, if you will. He was the youngest of eight brothers. So if you happen to have older brothers, maybe you can relate to this. I can speak with some level of expertise on this, being the youngest of three brothers. And I can tell you that when you are the youngest among brothers, you take a few beatings. When you are the youngest amongst a group of brothers, you are the butt of the practical jokes. When you are the youngest of a group of brothers, you get more than your fair share of wedgies. (laughs) And no one takes you seriously. No one wants your advice. No one really wants you to come along. You're the last one to get chosen when we're picking up sides for basketball and all of that kind of stuff. Such is the life of the youngest brother. Such is the life when you are the runt of the litter. You sort of know where your place is. You sort of know that you're never going to be the one in charge. You sort of know you're never going to be the boss of anybody. And as you grow up in that kind of situation, especially in that culture in those days, you have to sort of accept the fact that you are just always going to be an afterthought. You're never going to be the one in charge. You're never going to be the leader. You're never going to be the head of the household. In fact, in ancient Israel, uh, only the oldest brother would ever expect to be the head of a household at any point because they lived sort of in clans and you stayed within the patriarchy. You stayed generally within your father's household. And when the father passed away, the eldest son became the head of the household and the other sons might be married and they might have children, but they would live sort of in the same compound there. And it would always be the eldest brother who was the one who was the head of the family. So if you're maybe the second eldest brother, maybe you think you have a chance to at some point be somebody. But if you are the eighth in line, you just accept the fact that at an early age, you are never gonna be anybody. You're never going to amount to much. You're certainly not going to become a leader of people. You're certainly not going to become well-known. You're always gonna be the one that has the lesser role, the lesser position, the lesser job, that's who you're going to be. And so he never expected to be more than that. But God had big plans for the life of David. And we talked last week about uh, the famous Psalm 23 written by David that even to this day is impacting our lives, right? We think about David and we go, wow, that's a Bible hero. That's an important guy. But remember where he began. He was the eighth of eight brothers. Until that day, When he was anointed by Samuel, you'll remember the story, Samuel comes to the house and says to Jesse, I'm going to anoint one of your sons, and he brings all of the seven older sons in because David is out in the field with the sheep, and all of the seven sons are passed by, and he finally sends for David, and David is anointed to become the next king of Israel. And then that story is followed by the day when David is sent by his father as a messenger boy out to the front line, bring lunch to your brothers who were out there fighting in the battle. And when he gets out there, he sees the confrontation with Goliath and everyone is afraid. And David is the one 
by God's calling who steps up and faces Goliath and defeats the giant. He becomes a national hero, not because he was chosen to be somebody great, but because he happened to be the guy delivering the bologna sandwiches that day. I don't know if they were bologna sandwiches. Peanut butter sandwiches. He becomes a national hero. He, he becomes a conquering war general. He becomes the subject of the patriotic songs of the nation of Israel. We sing about purple mountains, majesty, and amber waves of grain in Israel. They sang about David. And, and so he's got all this going for him now. He's gone from complete obscurity into becoming the man in his nation. He is a warrior. He is a hero. He is a conqueror. He is a leader of men. And chicks dig that stuff. <laughs> and on top of that, the other things that the women like is if you're soft-hearted and poetic and they dig guitar players. He happens to be the greatest musician and songwriter the nation of Israel has ever seen. Arguably one of the greatest musicians and songwriters the world has ever seen. And we're still singing the songs that David wrote thousands of years ago today. David went from complete obscurity to the fast track of greatness all because of one thing. The grace of God at work in his life. He was going nowhere fast, but God intervened. Those might be my two favorite words in the Bible, but God. You know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. Gideon was the youngest son and the weakest family in the least important tribe in the nation of Israel, but God called him and said, I'm gonna make you a leader of men, and he became the leader of the nation. But God, but God, but God, every time you see those words, but God, in the Bible, you should perk up because it gives you hope, it gives you encouragement, it gives you a thought that God is able to do amazing things regardless of your circumstances. Things may be tough, but God is good. So David goes from obscurity to greatness because of the grace of God in his life, because God intervened. And eventually, David becomes the greatest king in the history of Israel. But this great man, David, also had a dark side. We all probably know about the incident with Bathsheba what that led to, the murder of her husband. He, he goes up on the, on the rooftop, which would have been a terrace kind of thing on his palace, and as he's looking down, he looks through the window of the neighbor's house, and there is Bathsheba who is bathing, and uh, he looks, realizes he shouldn't be looking, so he looks again. And then, he faces the temptation to say, is this something I walk away from or is this something I indulge in? And he begins to stare and he begins to lust and pretty soon he actually sends his, his palace guards to her house and says, bring her to me. You talk about a me too moment. This is a man with extreme power 
taking advantage of a woman who has no power in this situation, no ability to say no, no options before her. Her husband is off at war. There's not even anyone there to protect her. And David uses his power to seduce her, and some would say to rape her. And as a result of that, she becomes pregnant with his child, and the situation gets worse and worse and worse. And now, in order to save his reputation, this is a great man of God, remember? In order to save his reputation, he has to weave a a web of deceit so that it looks like he's not the father of this child, but her husband is the father. So he brings the husband, Uriah, home, figures, well, obviously, he comes home from the battleground. What's he gonna do? He's gonna enjoy the presence of his wife, and so he's not gonna be surprised when she turns up pregnant. This will cover it, but Uriah has more integrity in his little finger than David has in his whole heart, and Uriah says, I cannot enjoy the presence of my wife while my men are out there dying in battle, and he refuses to to go home to his wife. And now David's in trouble, so he kills Uriah. And so now we have a guy who just in one, he's been the hero of the story, and in one fell swoop, he breaks six or seven of the commandments. And his life begins to sputter And as we all know, God responded by completely abandoning David. He went down in history as a terrible failure. His life got derailed because of his sin. He lost everything, including the grace of God and his relationship with God and the love of God. And God ceased to love him and and ceased to be with him. And history remembers David as an utter failure. Wait, what? That's not what happened. That's not what happened at all, right? No, God calls David at the end of all of this a man after my own heart. And David continues to be this example of God's grace at work in someone's life and how God can change the world through a person who will just love God and love people. David is the one that we're told to become like. And God blessed him. And God honored him. And his life is still having an impact on us today. Just pick up and read the book of Psalms. We've been talking a lot lately about what it looks like to get unstuck. How sometimes in life, circumstances just sort of grab hold of our ankles and we can't move. How sometimes in life, our own decisions result in tragedy and we end up stuck in the situation that was our own doing. How sometimes in life, we, we are the victim of other people's sin and as a result of that, we become stuck in our situation. But let's be honest, for some of us, it feels like this whole idea of forward progress is a joke. Sometimes it it feels like that forward progress that we thought we were making just sort of stalls out. And the fact is some of us are stuck and we can't imagine how we could ever get unstuck because we can't reverse the series of, of circumstances that brought us to where we are. And, and others may not know about it, but each of us knows what's got us stuck. 
Each of us knows the secret things of our hearts that we may hide well from other people, but, but we know. And we all probably know what it's like to look in the mirror and just shake your head, not because of what you see on the outside, but because of what you know is true on the inside. We know who we really are. We know what we're actually guilty of. We know about the times that, that we have failed God and in our heart of hearts, we know that we're disqualified. And we get really honest with ourselves. We relate to King Saul more than we relate to King David. King Saul was the first king of Israel. He preceded David as Israel's king. And, and he too was chosen of God. He too was anointed to be the representative of God and the leader of Israel. And he too got tripped up by temptation. Uh, you, we don't have time to look this up. You can, you can read this this week in your quiet time. 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll find um, Saul's story, or at least part of it. God gives him very, very clear directions. God says, I'm going to, to judge the Amalekite people and I'm gonna use the army of Israel to do it. I want you to gather an army, I want you to lead them in and I want you to utterly destroy them and the memory of them from the face of the earth. I don't want anything left alive. I don't want you to take any spoils. I want you to destroy the Amalekites from the face of the earth. And he puts the army together and he goes and they rout the Amalekites. But then he starts thinking, you know, it seems silly to kill the king. We could bring him back as a prisoner and we could march him through town in a parade and humiliate him and show my greatness. And it seems ridiculous uh, to not take all of these animals, this livestock. This is tremendous wealth. And there, there's treasure here. There's tremendous wealth. It seems ridiculous to just let all of this stuff go. And so, he takes the king alive, he brings the livestock back, he brings the treasure back, and he gets confronted by the prophet. The prophet says, you haven't obeyed God, and what does Saul do? Points a finger, shifts the blame, makes excuses, and, and as a result, God says, you're disqualified to be king. And he strips him of his royal position. And the scripture says, worse yet, he removes his spirit from Saul. And Saul goes down in history as an utter failure. He goes down in history as an example of how we should not live. While David goes down in history as one of the greatest men of God who ever walked the face of the earth. And what is the difference between these two men? They both sinned. They both gave in to temptation. But if you ask just about anybody whose sin was greater, they would say David's sin was greater. They both sinned. They both gave in to temptation. They were both far from perfect. In fact, when you think about it, David's sins are much worse than Saul's. And so on the one hand, we have David, guilty of adultery, guilty of deceit, guilty of murder. A man after God's own heart. 
And on the other hand, we have Saul, who simply doesn't follow all of God's instructions to the T, disqualified, unworthy, stripped of the presence of God in his life. Why? We'll talk more about that in a minute. Because today's message is not meant for Saul. Today's message is not meant for David. Today's message is meant for you and me, right? So I'm going to give you the warning that I give you often, which is when you begin hearing convicting things coming from the Word of God this morning, do not look at the person next to you and the person across the room or the person who's not here today and think, man, I got to tell them to go online and watch this. But instead, ask yourself, what is God saying to me? Because God has a message from his word for each and every one of us, and we are regular people. And you know what? As regular people, we mess up a lot. We are regular people who look in the mirror sometimes and are racked with guilt and shame. We are people who make promises to God and the very next day break those promises. No amen? Okay, I guess maybe it's just me. We're people who sometimes feel completely disqualified if we're honest. So I want us to jump forward now into the New Testament era, and I want us to think about two other stories that are also very similar, but which end differently. Let me introduce you to a man by the name of Judas. Judas, lest you forget, was a very close follower of Jesus, Judas was chosen by Jesus himself to be in relationship with Jesus, and not just any relationship, but a very intimate, very special, very close, very personal relationship. He was chosen by Jesus to be a part of the inner circle. He was one of those disciples. There were thousands who followed Jesus, but there were 12 who we read about again and again and again in Scripture because they were with him all of the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years. Judas lived with him, and Jesus entrusted him to be the treasurer for their ministry. We hear a lot of bad things about treasurers in ministries. Where's David? <laughs> Maybe we'll call you Judas from now on. <laughs> Judas was so close, so trusted by Jesus that he was the one who handled the money for their entire ministry team. And we know now that he was stealing from the treasury box. Jesus washed Judas' feet at the Last Supper. He called him his brother and his friend. And Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Just like the other 11 disciples, Judas had preached the gospel in the town surrounding Jerusalem. 
Just like the other 11 disciples, Judas had performed miracles in the name of Jesus. Just like the other 11 disciples, Judas had cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He, he is not known for those things though, is he? What's he known for? Betrayal. He's known for betraying Jesus and his story is one of the most tragic stories in all of the scripture. In fact, one of the most tragic stories in all of human history because he ends up dead by his own hand having committed suicide because he could not handle the weight of the guilt and the shame that plagued his life because he was a betrayer of Jesus. Now, by way of contrast, Let's think about a real Bible hero, a real spiritual giant, one of the great ones, the hero of the book of Acts. His name is Peter. And like Judas, Peter was part of the inner circle. And like Judas, Peter walked closely with Jesus for three years. And like Judas, Peter preached the gospel and people got saved. And like Judas, Peter performed miracles. And like Judas, Peter cast out demons. And like Judas, Peter betrayed Christ. He swore he would never deny him. He swore that he would stand up for Jesus in any circumstances, even if it cost him his life. But as you know, when push came to shove, Peter let his fear control him. Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And the last time, Jesus looked him in the eye as he did it. These, these two guys, their stories are almost identical. But they ended very differently. Because while Judas's body was rotting at the foot of the cliff, Peter was being restored to Jesus through grace and repentance. And his life was given purpose and meaning and significance and dignity. And he was used by God to change the world. And his life is still impacting our lives today. So what was the difference? What made the difference between these two stories? We'll get to that later too. But for now, let me just remind you of something. Jesus did not come to judge. He came to redeem. Now, because I didn't see you all take out a pen and write that down, I'm going to say that again. Jesus did not come to judge. He came to redeem. Most people love John 3.16. I do too. But the verse that really gets my attention and captivates me is the verse right after John 3.17. Because John 3.17 says this, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, there's this reputation that somehow Jesus has gotten over the years, really more a reputation that the followers of Jesus have gotten over the years, and that reputation is that it is our place to be judges. And what Jesus said is, I did not come to judge. You are already judged by your own sinful actions. You don't need to be judged. He says, I have not come to judge. I have come to set captives free. 
I have come to preach release to the prisoners. I have come to heal the sick. I have come to raise the dead. I have come to redeem those who are in bondage. My friends, you and I will never make forward progress in our lives until we realize Jesus did not come to destroy us. He came to save us. Oh, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done because I know what I've done. And I promise you this, you're no more guilty than I am. Whatever you've done, whatever guilt you carry, whatever shame, whatever secrets you hold, you're no more deserving of condemnation than I am. But the beauty of the gospel is found in Romans chapter eight, verse one, because in chapter seven, Paul describes this battle that we have with the flesh, and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He says, the things that I wish to do, I do not do, but I find myself doing the things I do not wish to do. What a wretched man I am. How am I ever gonna be set free? And that's how chapter seven ends in the book of Romans. And chapter eight begins with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You clearly are not listening. Chapter eight of Romans begins with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying sin is not bad and all due respect, I'm not saying your sin's not bad. Sin's devastating. I'm not saying there's no consequences to sin. And Paul wasn't saying there's no consequences to sin. I mean, Romans 6.23 begins this way. The wages of sin is death. So far be it from me to, in in the effort to uh, draw a big crowd or get people to like what I have to say, far be it from me to be one who would imply that there are no consequences to sin. Sin is terrible, it's devastating. It promises greatness and it delivers garbage. That's sin. The wages of sin is death, but I just have to praise God because Romans 6.23 doesn't end there. In fact, this one I'm gonna make you look up because you should be underlining it, highlighting it, and putting a star by it. Romans chapter six, verse 23. It's in your New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter six and verse 23. It begins with those words, for the wages of sin is death, But it doesn't stop there, you guys. Listen to this. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's another one of those but gods. The wages of sin is death, but God, by his grace, saves us and offers us eternal life. It's not that sin is not terrible. Sin is the whole reason for the cross. Sin is the whole reason for Jesus' suffering. Sin is terrible and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The story of mankind is very simple. God gives us every good thing that we have. 
He gives us the air that we breathe and the life that we hold on to. He gives us love and hope and opportunity. But every one of us has thrown those things back in his face. That's what the Bible tells us. And you don't need the Bible to tell you that because you've been living with yourself for a long time. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is bad news. But the gospel, the good news, is that God loves us too much to leave us stuck in the consequences of our sin. That's why he sent Jesus to die for us. His death on the cross pays the price for our sin. His victory in the empty tomb defeats death on our behalf. We have two great enemies, sin and death, and they were both obliterated by Jesus between Friday and Sunday. Listen, because of him we can be redeemed. The Bible doesn't take sin lightly. When we rebel against God, and we all do, the consequences are horrible. I want you to turn, if you're in Romans, just turn to the right and go to 1 Corinthians chapter six. And and you are not going to like the verses I'm about to read. So, you know, save your emails. Send your email to god at bible.com. I'm just going to read you the actual words of the scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So before you buy into any of this baloney about how sin's no big deal and the moral law doesn't matter and you get to decide your own uh, truth for yourself and you get to follow your own path, what it says here, these are the words of God, what it says here is that if your life is marked, characterized, if who you are is characterized by your sin, it doesn't say someone who had too much to drink, it says a drunkard, right? These are life characterizing sins. And he's saying that if sin is that which characterizes your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a big problem. Now I realize those are offensive words. I realize that the words that I just read you are completely politically incorrect. I understand that. But unfortunately, They're also true. And I want you to be careful here. Don't get hung up on the details. This is just a partial list of life-controlling sins. You, You can look at this list and then take your pet sins and stick them right in the middle of the list. 
When your life is dominated by sin, when your life is characterized by sin, when the best way to describe you is the sin that plagues you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's offensive, it's politically incorrect, and I don't like preaching about it, but I can't do anything about it because it's right here in the scripture and it's not one of those things that you can go, well, maybe it doesn't mean that. It's about as clear and obvious as it could possibly be. When sin is the identifying mark of your life, the Bible says in no uncertain terms that a person whose life is controlled by his sins will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They will not receive eternal life. That is bad news. But just like Romans 6.23, I am so thankful that it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. There's another one of those but gods. He just told us we're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, but by God's grace, we can be sanctified. But by God's grace, we can be justified. But by God's grace, we can be made new. You know what that means? It means that the grace of God is so great that it can make you a former drunkard. Now, I, I know that AA says once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I say when a person is in Christ, they are made new. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. That means you can be a former drunkard. It means you can be a former thief. It means you can be a former swindler. It means you can be a former idolater. It means you can be a former homosexual. Fill in your own sin habit. You can be a former one of those by the grace of God, by the sanctification of the Spirit, and by the blood of the Lamb. You can be made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 sums it up. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's the difference between Saul the failure and David, the man of God, after God's own heart? It certainly isn't their guilt. They're both guilty before a holy God. The difference is in their response to God. Saul hid his sin. Saul made excuses. Saul blamed others. Saul refused to own what he had done. He, 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 he rejected the grace of God and refused to walk in that grace, and ultimately, he got his wish, and God departed from him. But when David was confronted with his sins, he made no excuses. In fact, another thing during your quiet time this week, read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's own account of his prayer to God when he was confronted with the sin regarding Bathsheba and Uriah. And he cries out to God and he says, oh God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is guilty in your sight. He takes full responsibility. He repents. 
He confesses and he accepts the gracious forgiveness and restoration that God offered to him. And here's where this gets personal. Guys, some of us are living under such a weight of guilt and we are not willing to accept the free gift of grace and forgiveness that God offers us. Some of us are stumbling, stuck, sinking in quicksand. Well, God stands there and says, I died for you. Take my hand and I will carry you home. Some of us are not making any forward progress because the weight of our sin is just pressing us down, the guilt and the shame and all that goes with it. And God says, no, 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 I'm calling to you. I've paid the price for your sin. I can make you new. Remember, God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. What's the difference between Judas, the betrayer of Christ, and Peter, the great apostle who led the church? Is it that Judas, it's, 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 it's not that Judas did anything that was so much worse than what Peter did. It's that Judas allowed his guilt and his shame to smother him to the point where he took his own death because he couldn't bear the thought of coming back and facing Jesus. But Peter couldn't bear to stay in the boat when he saw the risen Jesus on the shore. He dove into the water and swam as fast as he could just to get to the feet of Jesus, to look him in the eye again and to be restored to Jesus, to accept the grace, to accept the forgiveness, to accept the freedom from sin and guilt and shame. And he was set free and God used him to change the world. You guys, God is not surprised by your sin. He knew all about it before you were born. That's why he sent his son to die for you. Jesus came to set captives free and he stands ready to forgive, ready to restore. He came to make you new and he paid a very high price to buy your pardon. You are not disqualified. So when you look in the mirror and the guy in the mirror looks back at you and starts shaking his head because of all the shame and the guilt and the secret stuff that nobody else knows anything about and you feel like I'm stuck and I'm never gonna get out of this, I'm completely disqualified. God says you are not disqualified but I love you and I died for you and I'd do anything to get you back. That's how much God loves you. God says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means you can be forgiven. It means you can be restored. It means you can be transformed. You can be made new. God knows everything about you and he loves you anyway. There's nothing you have to do to earn his forgiveness. It's offered to you freely that's called grace. The rest of your story will not be determined by your past. The rest of your story will not be determined by yesterday's sin. 
The rest of your story will be determined by your response to God's offer of amazing grace. You don't have to be stuck for one more moment. Let me invite you to bow your heads. And as, as the room is quiet and each of us just sort of sits alone in a crowd, I want to invite you to just give God a moment to speak to your heart. And maybe he's going to reveal some darkness that you know is there, but you keep pushing it aside. Maybe he might reveal to you that uh, you don't really have a relationship with him at all, despite all of your religious activity. Or maybe he just wants to put his arms around you and comfort you. And to remind you that all that you've been through, he was there too. That he has never left you. That he's never forsaken you. And he's not about to start now. That the love of God is so great that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the scripture says that God doesn't expect us to do a bunch of religious works. God doesn't require us to pay a bunch of money as an entrance fee into heaven. There's no karma rule that says you're going to get back what's coming to you. The scripture says Jesus paid your price. And if you're within the sound of my voice right now, and you realize you've never accepted that free gift of the grace of Jesus, now is the time. And you do it personally. You don't have to join a club or say a certain mantra or make an offering. You just have to let go and let God take you home. So right now where you are, you might just want to silently in your heart pray a prayer something like this. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself and the guilt and the shame of it all just weighs me down. But Lord, I trust that your love for me is greater than even all of my sin. And I trust that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to set me free from that sin. And so I repent of my sins and I turn to you, Jesus, and I say, be my Lord, be my Savior. And the scripture says that when you ask him to do that, he gives you the free gift of salvation. And if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. And one last word to those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you keep stumbling in the same spots. There's nobody who's been walking with Jesus for a long time that can't relate to that. 
Maybe you just need to silently in your own heart talk to the Lord about the fact that you keep taking things into your own hands and you keep doing things your own way and receive the freedom that he's promised you in Christ. God, today we come before you as people who cannot save ourselves, people who are desperately lost apart from you, people who would never amount to anything if it wasn't for your amazing grace. And we say thank you for the blood of the Lamb shed on the cross of Calvary for us to set us free. Thank you for the empty tomb. That means that death no longer has reign and rule over us. Thank you, God, for your incredible love and your incredible mercy. Help us each and help us all to walk in that grace and mercy every day. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.